Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping. Summer ship So you can start crossing items off your must-ship list. Like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class. Or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Hello and a warm welcome to our thousands of listeners around the world to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast. The podcast that takes you on adventures into the British countryside and where you can forget work and life stresses for a short time. In this episode, Annabelle Ross is your host again and she heads to the South Hams in Devon for a walk with writer, broadcaster and farmer Jonathan Dimbleby. Jonathan is perhaps best known most recently for presenting the political discussion programme Any Questions on BBC Radio 4 but he's fiercely committed to the countryside. And here he reveals his long love of farming, horses, hunting, nature, and of course, our beautiful landscapes. It's a fabulous 40 minutes. So, I don't think I'm so out of breath now. Um, you're, quite a, you're quite a walker. Do you walk all the time? <laughs> I walk quite a lot. And we've just walked up quite a steep hill and I would have been puffing more than I'm puffing at the moment along this Devon Lane, which is very quiet. And what I love about walking, I walk very often alone. You can go at your own pace. You don't have to talk. Um, <laughs> I'm so and, sorry. No. no. Um, I enjoy explaining why I like it. Yeah. And it's very good seeing the seasons change in close-up. Seeing the smells of the countryside change month by month and hearing them smelling them. Not many birds at the moment. They're feeding on berries somewhere or other, but not along this lane. You you can't hear a single bird. It's also very good for clearing the mind. Whatever it may be, I find it clears the mind. And I'm writing a lot at the moment. And I find if I've got a problem with a 
series of related thoughts and I can't get them in the right order. I think them through when I'm walking and hardly notice where I've been and I have it clearly in my head. Then I can go back, sit down at my desk and it all disappears again. <laughs> I was going to say, do you remember everything? No, I get the, I get the gist of uh, uh, you know, the, the thought order in broad terms. So it's very, yes, as you say, it's very quiet here today, but it's quite smelly. It's quite potent. What's, what's that? We've got, I think there's a, a tractor's come along and it's dropped off some loose silage. I imagine taking it from the clamp to wherever the cattle are. And there's that smell of silage, which is sort of... People who don't like country smells loathe the smell of silage. It can be overly sweet, um, which I don't like either. But if it's right, you can tell... Mm, Cows are going to like that and they'll do well on it. And so there's that. Um, you get when there's muck spreading. Most of the muck is sort of being taken out. Good farmers will have taken it out and put it into clamps to turn it so it becomes very good organic uh, manure. And when it's then spread, you smell it. The one smell I'm not quite so fond of, which emanates heavily from the sheds, is pig manure. Do you consider yourself today an organic farmer? Well, I don't farm, um, but I feel very, more than ever, sympathetic to the organic principles. We're actually, we're, we've just turned off a lane, slightly muddy track. It's not too bad considering how much it's rained. And we are oh, it's quite a view, going though. through, it's a stunning view. We're, we're actually going through a farmer who's sort of, this is a permissive footpath, which I like very much, which is to say that in return for a grant, farmers let you go through their land and this land is farmed organically as it happens which is for me the best way of ensuring the production of a sustainable agriculture you know the word sustainable used to be very unfashionable 30 years ago now no one can stop using it sometimes to very good effect sometimes to sell products which are um, that the best There's less puddles on this side. Do you want to come? I'll come this side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> skirting skirting <laughs> puddle, puddles on a farm track, which is fine. And, and we, where we are now is one of my favourite walks. I do walk quite a lot when I can get the chance. Could we stop for a second? Yes. Just so you can tell me what we're looking at over there, which we're looking to the south. Yeah, we're looking out to the east. To the east. Southeast <laughs> of it. And we're looking out into Torbay. And there's a, there's a mist in the sky today, but it's still the outlines of Torbay you can just about see. It, it always, here we are in virtual silence here. That's pretty quiet. And there is that bustling, quite large town, uh, oh, seven, eight miles away. And, and <laughs> it feels like another world. And between it are the sloping hog's backs of Devon Hills, which I very much like small fields, lots of hedges. Is that, I mean, what is it about Devon? I, you've got a history with Devon, haven't you? Yeah, I first came down to Devon when my parents bought a little cottage on the edge of the river. And we've been coming down ever since to this corner of South Devon. And I've always loved it, partly because of the water, river, messing around for children, crabbing, 
sailing, kayaking, uh, boating, picnics, and partly because you can also have very good sailing out in Start, in Start Bay. And if the weather's not too bad, actually if the weather's not too good, you often get better sailing, which is one of the tiresome paradoxes of sailing. I didn't know you were a sailor. Is that one of your big passions? Well, I used to sail much more than I do now. I, I, I'm a rather, I'm a very much a fair weather sailor. <laughs> I don't like going out and banging up and down in waves. I look with admiration but not envy at people <laughs> for whom the sea is their second home. <laughs> but I do, I do, I do like it. And there's something wonderful about getting out. That the best part of sailing for me has always been seeing the port that you're coming into and thinking, ah, a pint of beer, some food, and, and we won't be moving all the time. <laughs> but it, it's almost worth it for that sensation. And, and the, the, the quality of the landscape viewed at the pace at which you go on a boat. You're generally going a bit faster when you're sailing than you are when you're walking, but not much faster, and often you're going slower because you're against the tide or the wind's dropped a bit, and you get that particular quality of sitting and looking at landscape. Oh. I think we've got a massive puddle here. Yeah, I think we've got on the left. OK, here. you... you go. And we plan up for it. Yes, you lead the way. It's OK. It's puddles. Um, so you mentioned the word sustainable, and... I'm not really sure if that's not being... You say it was, hasn't been used. It never used to be used so much, and now I feel it's being overused. Well, I think it's become meaningless, really. Yeah. Everything is sustainable um, at one level, if you're lucky, except life on Earth. The, in the, it had a very much narrower meaning, sustainability. If you go back to the 80s, when it was first being used seriously, particularly after the 1987 Brundtland report, which is a seminal work, which incidentally alerted the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, to the importance of climate and the importance of biodiversity. And people who got very seriously engaged then uh, talked about sustainable development um, and they talked about sustainability of land. Well, you can develop, obviously, in very unsustainable ways. Yeah. The most crude example is building houses on floodplains um, when you know that the, the, riv- the river's going to rise and, and ruin people's homes. Um, um, that's unsustainable. But sustainability can be used by some businesses to suggest that everything they're doing is a solution to the problem. So they may do a bit of carbon offset. You know, we'll plant some trees in return for flying our jets around the world is mm, it's better than nothing but it's not actually creating a a sustainable future and so um if you if you want if you could create a more let's use it in a in a better sense if you could create a more sustainable country british countryside what would you like to change Uh, uh, i would like i think that i have a lot of sympathy uh with farmers I, i i've i i've been on the board as president or chair of quite a lot of Mm. organizations involved in one way or another with the countryside and the there's always been a tension historically between the environmentalists and farmers environmentalists who have a vision and some theoretical solutions farmers who have to live in a very difficult harsh world and when I was very young I went to agriculture college I, 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 I wrote my first ever article and 
it was provocative and deliberately so for the magazine of the college, which was then called the Royal Agricultural College, now university, and um, I won the competition for describing farmers, all of whom were at the college, as feather-bedded. It didn't make me terribly popular at the time. <laughs> what was, however, the, the funny thing was I made the terrible mistake of asking uh, the organisers how many people had entered this uh, magazine competition. Um, the answer was one. I was the only <laughs> entry. So I was first and last. Are you, are you quite competitive? I fear. <laughs> I have acquired reputation. I don't think I'm very competitive now because I've been very fortunate. I've done so many things I've enjoyed doing and um, have been competent at. And I, 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 I'm now competitive with myself. I want, to, I want to make sure my book is better, better, better than I always fear it's going to be. So, um... So what advice would you... Yeah, the farmers. Yeah, hang on, let me just get the microphone near you. Yeah. Where we are now is an absolutely typical Devon landscape. The hedge here on the left is quite overgrown because it's been deliberately left, I hope, whether it'll be laid, because laying hedges are very difficult. I think it looks to me actually it's built coming out of us, out of a bank or even a stone wall. Um, It's quite a steep hill down to the right of us. It's a permanent pasture. I don't think this has been ploughed for a very long time. It's tufts of grass. Usually the tufts are where the droppings have lain in little clumps and the grass grows more coarsely. Little oak trees, a lot of holm oaks around here. And of course there are also a lot of um, um, ash, which is tragically going to start to disappear. Unless they come up with, which I read some research, solutions at least for the next generation of young ash. Yes, I hope And then we're they. looking across across the valley, across looking a creek, rather misty. across a misty valley to, to the town. Um, and then actually looking straight out in front of us, there's a, a V in the hills mm. with houses on one side and houses on the other, and that is Start Bay, the English Channel. Ah, OK. So... Are you happy to be on this farm? Is this farm making you smile? Is this good farming? Yes, I mean, poor farming, I say, going back to what I was trying to... from what I was diverting myself from, (laughs) um, um, I I have a lot of sympathy for farmers who are making tiny amounts of money and so they inevitably try to increase their stocking rates to their livestock farmers, increase their inputs until they realise it's counterproductive in arable farms because they have huge uh, um, costs and very, they're often in hock to banks and they uh, have very small margins. That's a life of permanent stress. It is no accident, incidentally, the high number of people, farmers, who commit suicide. Um, which Still? Is, yes. I don't know what the latest statistics are, but they're pretty prevalent. And it isn't, uh, uh, leaving aside lots of accidents, such as they're still around farms, uh, because of you know, failure to adopt the most stringent health and safety measures, like we all fail to adopt them. Um, the, the, 
So to persuade such for hunger, no, well it isn't, because see what's happening is the soil is being eroded. We're finally waking up and I think this is getting through now, finally getting through. I mean, you know, those who have been involved in it, and I've been, have been, not, you know, I, last thing I'd say is I was at the centre powerful figure in it, but I have been very much involved in supporting and engaged in speaking on it over the last, you know, 25 years or more. Soil is the fundamental of life. There used to be this old phrase, I think it was A.G. Street, or someone, who said way back in the 50s, and it was said, it became a sort of tagline, the answer lies in the soil. <laughs> Truth is, the answer lies in the soil, in the water, and in the air. And if you don't get that combination right, you are heading towards long-term perdition. And that, <laughs> in the interest at least of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, is... Uh, devoutly to be uh, uh, avoided. Why, we, why, why have we gone so horribly wrong? I mean, that's a really long question, I know, but your well, opinion. Well, I think, I think that we've got it wrong because we've, we're all, and I'm no exception, um, we've all been driven by the thought that growth means a better life. Mm. Um, economic growth means a better life. Expansion means a better life, and there will always be a technological fix. Now, there are and have been demonstrably uh, um, created uh, technological fixes, which are sensational, scientific technology. Uh, and a lot still can be done. I'm not yet a doom-monger. You know, I, I, I greatly admire the zest and the passion of those who campaign for Extinction Rebellion. But I think they massively overstate, and that could be quite um, counterproductive. They, if, it, it, it's no good merely saying, um, we're holding you to account, we blame you, you're getting this wrong to the, to the elders and not betters, on the one hand. And on the other hand, saying at the same time, we're going to end up going to hell in a handcart with billions of people dying, you know, within 30 years or whatever they figure they come up with. That is absolute nonsense. Well, because it's, it's not really helping the situation. Well, it's not, really, not, not helping. It's not true. And the really awful thing is that the people uh, that we have in this country, we have um, very great inequalities. We have people uh, having to use uh, food banks, people living in squalid conditions, people with mental health problems, and all the rest, which we can enumerate, and politicians trot them out all the time. Um, and that's not good. But it is as nothing as what it will be for people living in the developing world on low-lying islands, isthmuses, uh, in territory which could be uh, devoid of water. Those people will suffer so grievously because, because of the fact of climate change, that uh, the exploitation of the, of the elements. Uh, and what will happen is... One of two things, and I don't think this is an exaggeration. You'll either have a great many more people dying in extreme events, and or you will have people saying, we've got to move out of here. We've got to get to the next safest place. And then you have huge social economic upheaval, which can have a very, very damaging effect on the, the lives of everyone. And that... That, it seems to me, to be the prime concern, and it is solvable. You, know, you talk to someone like... Yes, can we have something positive now, please, yeah. Jonathan? Yeah, that's why it's solvable. <laughs> you can, you, if we improve our farming 
methods. If we, you know, the NFU, and I have every belief that they are, that the NFU is serious about, say that they are going to, they seek to be carbon neutral by 2030. It's a huge demand, and I don't know how it's achieved, but I respect the NFU for saying that. Um, we know that you can do a huge amount in this country, and it's not good enough to say, well, if we do it, it's not being done by Trump's America. You know, Trump's are here today, gone tomorrow, um, and when he's gone, there will be someone else, and America will not indefinitely deny climate change. Uh, if you can get uh, international agreement, when we've already got quite a long way down that road, Paris Accords being the latest, there is every possibility, I think, um, of bringing about uh, a sustainable way of reducing the rise in, in uh, carbon gases into the atmosphere. You can... Dave King, Sir David King, um, former scientific advisor to the government and one of the leading experts in the field, said, we could actually, if we could, if, if it became cost-effective, then we could... Uh, fuel Europe all its electricity needs we're going electric rapidly which is also a good thing um, uh, uh, using the sun that is that you harvest from the North African deserts paying the North African countries you have to be able to take it of course communicate it uh, by to, to, to Europe somehow, and that yeah. transportation can be done but it's very expensive oh, oh careful oh. are you okay yes I just oh, made wow. it <laughs> You, I thought you did at one point live on an organic farm, or have I got that wrong? No. Did you own one? Yes. Ah. I, when, I was, when I was a child, we lived on a small farm in Sussex, because my father was romantic about the land and farms, and he'd always been a city person. We used to have rather small animals to compensate for the size of the farm. So little Dexter cows rather than big cows. Rather fierce our lot were. We had chickens. We had pigs. And I loved working with them, you know, in school holidays. And I rode horses. So I was... It's quite a steep hill here, so you don't mind me huffing and puffing. Well, I, I'm sorry that it's you doing the talking, yes, OK. And, we, and I liked very much... Um, that life. In fact, I avoided going abroad on holidays. I avoided doing anything except staying on the farm and being a proper stick in the mud, which by nature I remain. Um, so you fast forward, I went to agricultural college. Well, I just want to ask, sorry, can I ask, when you were, now I have to talk breathlessly, <laughs> get you a break. Um, when you were Growing up on the farm, none of your siblings were as interested as you in the, in the farm animals. They, I think they quite liked them. Um, my younger brother and sister rode, David, my brother, rode. My father used to ride, so we had a remarkable assemblage of horses and ponies for a time. I was the only one who sort of pursued it through uh, with a sort of obsessive need to to be amongst animals and in the countryside. And so I became, I went to agriculture college, worked on a farm for a year and loved it. Harrowing fields, feeding the cattle, driving, driving the boar to the sows, quite a scary thing to do. <laughs> they get quite cross or eager anyway. Did they get the better of you at all? Yeah, the main, the main, 
at one point, he, he, there was a field of sows and I was driving up the, going up this lane and I had a sort of board and a stick. Go on a man, go on a man like that. And, and, and increasingly aggressive sounds. And I saw there were a, a group of sows, actually I think they were gilt, young sows, in a, in a field off to the left. And he was determined to go through the wire fence. So I gave him an almighty clout, relatively almighty clout, I hasten to say to animal lovers like myself. Um, and instead of, instead of just, we were, we, did we come through here? We came through here. Oh, that's right, of course, that's where we want to go back. Um, lost my bearings. Although we, that goes <laughs> back through the puddles, I don't know if there's another way. Oh, I love your story. I love your story, yes, I'm going to hold on to that. Look, it's brightening up a little bit. So we are. We came through here, and we we this is we got we got we're somewhere just about here. So the track goes like that, out onto the lane. Um, that's if the track to the ah. No, hold on. We're here. Sorry. So we and we've come we've come here, and that. So if we turn left, that's part concrete, which is that what was we wouldn't use. Right. So if we turn, if we go on this one, am I right? Yes. Then this one comes we out. Can. And, yes. Can we? Well, that, that's, what's, that's a feel, though, isn't it? Um, oh, I see. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's that. It's a track. It, comes, it comes out there. Um, and so we, we should be okay. Shall we try it? Yeah. I think you're right. It's better than. And it's slightly rainy. less rainy, which is good. We dry yes. off on the way home. We can still do the pub lunch anyway, if you'd like to. But if you don't, I don't, I don't mind if you need to. Anyway, so, so then you, I am with you, my pigs, yes, with okay. my boar. And so. It was, there was still about a quarter of a mile to the farmyard to where I was meant to be taking him. So I, I whacked him on the back. Gently, yes. Gently, of course. <laughs> and he suddenly went, uh, and he galloped off down the lane with me chasing behind him, trying to keep up with him. You weren't always, attached? No, 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 okay, no, no, no. And no, only by, no fear. <laughs> that would have been really dangerous. I could have been, oh, okay, I'd been okay. very tied up inside a field of sows yeah, with okay. him being very active. <laughs> Extremely embarrassing period. Um, um, the anyway, so it, we skidded into the farmyard where there happened to be a couple of people working who were then working on the farm. In those days, there were an awful lot of people working on farms, uh, and who completely fell about at this young, incompetent herdsman um, trying to. And he rushed straight into the south store where he was meant to go. He knew where he was going by that time. And I stood <laughs> exhausted. And on another occasion... Were you rather... Bru- ego, was your ego rather bruised at that point? Seriously bruised. Yeah. I mean, I felt very foolish. And um, I... Another occasion, I was left in charge of the... I loved lambing. And I used to say that the shepherd on the farm had a, an old caravan, a really old-fashioned type, sort of children's story, uh, shepherd's um, caravan with a stove smelt slightly sour milk because of the milk that he'd used to feed orphan lambs. And we, I, was to, I had a sheepdog who, when I was with the old shepherd, he was about 80, and he, he said, all right, John, I think you can do this. You can do it by yourself. So he went off. And I started to take the sheep. It went perfectly well. We had to pass along the edge of a golf course with tees and greens. And when we got there, the dog, who knew where the shepherd's cottage was, simply raced off towards home. And I was left by myself, pretending to be a sheepdog, rushing from side to side, trying to keep the wretched sheep 
off the golf course, which I totally failed to achieve. So I didn't, I'm afraid, confess later that all the little dents on the green, I, I, I would have said it's, it's very good, it's like you're ponging a lawn, <laughs> were caused by my... my um, oh yes, you could have said my, I did it on purpose. I did think. try and improve the quality of the green. Yes. Um, he would go, you know, in the, the two terms that shepherds use if you're standing with the sheep are in front of you, where you're looking forward at the sheep, to the right you say, um, uh, away, which means to go round anti-clockwise, or come by, and they, and they go clockwise. This one would only go away, so I had to do the come by part. <laughs> so you very fit that way. Oh, I see, you had to be the sheepdog for the come by. Yeah, I, I was the come, I was, it was as if there were two sheepdogs, yeah, and I was yeah. one doing come by, and the yeah. other one was going away. Um, it worked up to a point. So I, I then went to agriculture college, um, thought I'd be a farmer, various reasons, decided I couldn't or wouldn't, went to university and went down um, the, 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 the broadcasting... But that's the bit I'm intrigued about. Condition. The bit but before yeah. that... Well, sorry, while I was... Yeah. Before I did that, or at the same time, roughly, a bit before, um, I, I, I had the chance to... to, to ride horses professionally yeah. and I did that and it was quite good um, I say in a sort of slightly facetious way that I my, that only, claim, way of my only claim to fame is that I was once the South of England show jumping champion and as a result was tipped in the pages of horse and hound <laughs> as a potential future member of the uh, British show jumping team Oh, that was never realised, and I don't think it would have been, because I wasn't that good. I wasn't as good as the best. And you but have to be very, very good. And you have to have extremely good horses. I had a very good horse. It wasn't mine. I rode for the owner, and I wasn't as good as the horse. Are you saying right. that, or is that really you know, what it's happened? True. It's okay. true. You know, the best, show, the best riders have a wonderful ease. They can see a stride from a long way out, and they can do very gentle checking or accelerating so that they meet the fence consistently in the best place and that's a very great skill the greatest of them in my mind the British ones was um, um, David Broom who mm. just was instinctive mm. and you never saw him sometimes you thought how the, he didn't always have the best horses but he was the greatest show jump rider did you feel sad giving up the horse riding I did a bit but I didn't give up or I did actually I gave up at that point thinking I don't want to do it just for fun and I started again um, much, much later, in 1995. And I started because I decided I would go out hunting. This will provoke much angst and anger amongst people. Not because I wanted to go out hunting, but because I looked at the evidence and felt that the cruelty issue was very finely balanced. And it wasn't my job to look at the motives of people who went hunting. Although I knew quite a few who did it on very low incomes, incidentally, um, who worked in factories or in one particular case, a woman who worked in a, uh, in a uh, hairdressing salon, saved up instead of going on holiday to wherever. You mean it's not a rich man's sport? Not uniquely. It can be, of course, but it isn't uniquely a rich man's sport any more than spending a lot of money going and watching a football match is a rich man's sport. Yeah. And I thought it was a, a, therefore a civil liberties issue. So I took up hunting again and I, I, I went out and I, there were two things I loved about it. The one I can still get in a way 
was the stand. Yeah, yeah it's the first bird I've heard. Pheasant. <laughs> Not exactly a wild, Not particularly exactly wild. Not particularly wild. Although I expect, well, he's done quite well. He's lived so far through the season, <laughs> hasn't been shot. And um, we, I love that waiting, the uncertainty, on a damp day like this. And people will get out a cigarette, start to smoke. And as soon as they did that, there'd be a sound and you'd be off. <laughs> but it was the absolute uncertainty and the stillness and just the, the clanking of a bit. Um, the sound of the pheasant, I'll put it in my mind again. Um, the, the anticipation. The anticipation and the uncertainty. And then when you were off, it's very easy, and I suffered from it, the rush of, rush of blood uh, to the head syndrome. I got, I used to love going at a fence when you couldn't see the other side. It was just the, um, the thrill of the uncertainty. Um, Gosh. And, and if you were lucky, you landed safely on the other side. That clearly isn't the route. I wonder if it's down here. That says private as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, on the map, it sort of looks like we can carry on. Yeah. Um, so you did your... You got back on a horse, but did you go back to farming? Um, I didn't, and not until I could afford to buy a little bit of land. I went... I, 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 I bought some land near Bath, 60 acres, and started to farm it organically. By that time, um, I had got enthusiastic about organic agriculture. I had been, had seen um, the Prince of Wales's land at Highgrove, the home, the, the farm there, um, and I was impressed by the, the uh, quality of the land, the quality of the surrounding natural life, the teeming butterflies. Um, and one thing that struck me, David Wilson, who was and is the farm manager, um, we'll just pause here and have a look at the map. Um, he, he said, I went into a field and it was growing beans, 10, 15 acre field, and they were covered in black fly. Now the traditional way of doing that would be put spray all over and kill off the black fly. I said, what do you do about this? The crops were in. He said, no, no, come back in a month's time. I think it was um, April, May. Came back. The same field was completely cleared of any black fly. And the reason was that there were hedges all round, thick hedges which had been laid, and the ladybirds nesting in the hedges had come out and at that time of year predated all the uh, black fly, completely clean. And I thought that was, that was what, from, and then I sort of looked more into it and I became, got We're very involved. We're looking at the map. We're going um, left or right? I, I, I'm right. I think, confused. It has to, I think it has to be right. Down, it is right. Sure up, right. down. Yeah, I, I can see. I think it's. I think okay. it's to do with being patient and waiting, isn't it? It's yes. Organic. It is. Well, also your output is lower, so the only way you can make a profit is if people either pay more or your costs are lower, and that's a quite difficult trick. Um, profit this is correct, and and you know, it's not now. Um, quite a niche but it's still very small in this country relatively you don't necessarily have to in my mind now I'm not a sort of um, zealot about it um, I don't seek to dictate you can be pretty 
you can farm in a pretty sustainable way without being strictly speaking uh, living by organic rules but the broad principle of recognizing that the soil has to be protected that the absence of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers is good for the soil good for crops not bad for them that is what is important and and I just also I mean you know I, I yes I had those and have those views but what I loved you know I go out and sit in a field underneath the I had a stand of beach on the farm Ooh, and some some sit down there. in a field which had never been ploughed, which had orchids. You, could, you know, in one square metre you would get hundreds of different species growing. Sit there and look up and the sound of the breeze wafting through the, the trees and think this was... If, if heaven is better than that, then I want to go. Um, you know, it's the most wonderful thing. And yet the same thing when you're farming, you know... I sucked the mucus out of a sick lamb. I even done it with a calf until I was advised that was a bad thing to do because I could end up getting TB. Um, you get a passion. These animals have come alive. Of course, there's an irony in that because you're bringing these beautiful creatures into the world in order to have them killed for food. And I'm sort of ambivalent about that last part now. I'm not, I wouldn't... I don't raise my cudgels and say stop eating meat on those grounds. I don't like slaughterhouses. Um, but I would counsel, and in fact I don't eat nearly as much meat as once upon a time because eating less meat, not cutting it out. You know, we can't, you can't go around waving swords and speaking as though you're um, God waving a, a Damoclesian sword over people. Now that just doesn't work and it's also not necessary. If we cut back on the amount of red meat and other meats that we consume, we would help climate change, we would help the production of food for places that would be more efficient in reducing people's protein and energy needs than by huge numbers of animals in feedlots being fed grain which could be being grown for human beings. I, maybe I just wonder if actually what we need to start doing is thinking a little bit more about what we eat rather than just blindly eating anything that's available because there's so much available. Yeah, I think we, I think thinking for all kinds of ways. I mean, it's, it's not just for the environment, it's your own health as well, isn't it? We know the impact of bad diet. So all the things that you, because you've been, you've worked with the Soil Association and the RSPB, haven't you? And CPRE. What's that? Council of Protection of Rural England. Protection of Rural England. I was on the Council of the National Trust for a time. Gosh. So I was... Are you still on any of those or what are you... No, I I may be an honorary something or other, um, but I'm not involved in any direct way, except sort of distant support. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm down here. I'm, I'm proudly president of the... Uh, South Ham's area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, it's a, uh, it's South Ham's, is one of the great, and most beautiful parts of of the country, and it's very under pressure and mediating a way that you allow, you know, places to live and to grow, like in the Peak District or anywhere else, um, and at the same time protect what is precious about it, both in scientific 
uh, biological terms um, and also in terms of what it means for people's leisure, peace, tranquility. You know, these things have to be thought about very seriously and edicts from government saying you must build so many houses without the sensitivity that is required to do that well and too often I'm afraid local authorities who are either driven by nimbyism to an extreme point where they allow anything to happen or override that by saying we're going to cover the landscape here with a big private development because that will bring money into our coffers. Would you say that your... So your Bet Noir is the, is the housing developments on well, floodplains? Or what, what's think, your worst... What's the worst thing we're doing to the British countryside? What's your yes. absolute top worst? I think we're doing quite a lot of not good things. Um, and I think... Yes, that's where we're doing that. That's where we walk down. Um, the... Oh, right, OK. We, we turned down there, so we're doing fine. Um, I think the, the danger of, of getting, of linking up, extending small communities so that they get bigger and bigger and in, become indistinguishable from the next is quite worrying, and it's very easy to do that. I think that, the, that saying, right, we'll, have, we'll put a new town here or a new town there without looking really carefully at why there and... What's the benefit going to be? And what sort of housing do we want? What kind of community, new community, are we going to create in this new town? I think there is a, there's a kind of lack of subtlety in what I read. I'm not involved in it. There's been a very, very good report, which I hope doesn't get shelved, um, um, into the, the, the future of the national parks, which absolutely gets the need to balance the development and economic life of a community with its vital environmental protection. And it's a very good report, and the, the, the election um, has suspended any reaction to it. It would make a huge difference because there would be funds that would go, for instance, into the South Hams, which would allow people to have the opportunity to discover more about why... South Hams is important and needs to be very, very carefully developed. Oh. Now we can go through here. And I think this is not... This is just a lovely view down. Oh, OK, we can go through a field. Oh, look, it quite it looks rather lovely. Yeah, that's nice, to go back in the field now that it's stopped raining. This is what we would have done. That, the, the only bit of road we would have had is doing that very short bit. Oh. Um, but it was, it was pretty miserable when we did turn around. Um, so that's, and, and what's your, I think you've sort of talked about it, your sort of most, the best thing we are doing for the British countryside now. Waking up. We're waking up to the countryside. You know, we're with the massive attention being properly uh, devoted now, so it's quite difficult not to know that bees are important, not to know that birds matter, not to understand that there is a chain of life through the soil up into our own dinner plates. Um, that, I think, is vastly improved. I think that, the, that most farmers now are much more inclined to avoid uh, polluting their land with too much pesticide herbicide. I think that they, if they could and were given the right incentives, they would go much further in protecting the land. We have um, 
some regulation which is very good regulation about runoffs. I mean, the, the uh, lots of fertilizer being run off into into streams and killing fish. You know, that's much rarer now. Rivers are getting cleaner, so there's a lot of good things happening, and we just need more of it at a greater rate. And so, if we're now we're walking back down through this field, yes. and we're looking out onto that quite misty but rather beautiful scenery with yes. the autumn colours and the the odd green field and brown field. It's just gone over. There's a big, big woods there, and um, at its peak, the autumn colours are as good as you get in some of the great forests in America. The, the subtleties of green, the, the purples, the browns, absolutely wonderful. And this is a particular place soon across the valley there. And, and again, this is just, this is Devon, is it? This is farmland. It's peculiar to Devon. There are other places like it, but it's peculiar to Devon because of the land. The land, the quality of the land, which is low quality land relatively, grade two, grade three land, mainly grade three land, and the... Uh, the hills mean that you can only do efficiently certain kinds of farming. It's largely livestock farming. People would grow grain, and in some areas you grow grain for sale, often for feed grain, or you grow grain to feed your own animals. But it's not like the great uh, prairies of East Anglia and uh, um, further north. And, and that gives you... Uh, there, are two, there are several things it gives you. It gives you communities because farms have to be farmed and although they are diminishing in number of the farms and increasing in size and quite a lot of outsiders are buying the land you still have a lot of family farms who are um, important to the character and feel of communities and they i think they to the to the, the, the culture in agriculture mm. you know the culture of communities and place now there are lots of downside you get you know boring village gossip and backbiting you can get, all of those things <laughs> in small communities. You also have again and again the, uh, the urge of people to look after the weaker ones in their community and to protect them and when things are going wrong to support them. So the, I think the upsides outweigh the downsides. I would also, uh, because I think that the, the communities need to live, you need to have housing that can be lived in by people on, who would like to stay there but cannot afford the kinds of houses that middle-class people can buy as second homes. I'm not against second homes. They keep a lot of communities, particularly seaside communities, going. That's not the point. You just have to have houses that are, that are affordable. The market uh, drives what's affordable. And... Uh, and if that means more council building, it would be a very good thing. If it means uh, housing associations putting up houses that people can partly buy and partly uh, rent, those imaginative ways through allow people to stay in the area which they know and love and where their friends and families are. And I think that's a very positive thing. I think that, the, that we are very dislocated uh, by the 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 demands, the economic demands of, of life and the aspirations that we're all enjoined to have. Um, and I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't regard myself as being any different from other people in the respect of how I've been driven. Um, I, I, as I look now, from this perspective, I think I would like to be able to be in just one quiet place, never get on an aeroplane again, never... Uh, never... never kind of spend my life thinking about what have I got to do next and that's my privilege I can do that because I don't have to now um, um, work as hard the trouble is I'm too driven so I end up working just as hard
<laughs> that was beautiful. I just want to ask, can I stop you again? Sorry, because I want to ask you this view that we're yes. that we're looking at. If it looked exactly the same in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, would you be happy? Or would you like it to change in any way? I would not like this view to change. And I'm optimistic that it won't, because it's a protect, it is, this is an area of outstanding natural beauty, and it is protected. And I think because it's alongside a very beautiful river, um, there will be... Yeah, ferocious response if there are any attempts to destroy it. I think that I, I, I fear sometimes that farmers will put up there another new building when the old one is no longer convenient and won't choose the most sensitive place to put it up, hidden behind a hill rather than on top of the hill. But I would be I don't suppose that I will be here in 50 years' time, because I would be 125 years old. Uh, but for the purposes of argument, I have a feeling that if I were, it wouldn't much have changed. And I hope that in 50 years' time, the climate will mean that nothing much has changed and that these white clouds with the dark rain clouds behind will be like this and we won't be being torn by terrible storms at this time of year beyond the normal equinox storms. And that there will be... Yeah, like everyone, you you wanted to be serene, peaceful, this part of the world. And it can be. It's, all is not lost. If it were, it wouldn't be worth us having this conversation with it. Well, what a wonderfully inspiring speaker Jonathan Dimbleby is. Some really thought-provoking discussions and a heartening vision of the future of the British countryside. A big thank you to Jonathan and to Annabel Ross for that. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by emailing me at editor at countryfile.com and also leave reviews on whichever podcast provider you use. Lastly, don't forget to tune in to next week's Escape into the Wilds. I'm also delighted to announce that the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, or podcast as we know it, has been shortlisted in the Podcast Producers Awards, which is very exciting. And if we win, the beers are on us. Uh, we find out in early spring whether we've won, but it's really, really lovely to have been recognised in this way. So that's it for now. This podcast was produced in Bristol by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>